Steeple Rock Partners is proud to sponsor this edition of the Real Estate Time Machine podcast. I remember distinctly waking up thinking to myself, I, I don't think I want to do this another 30 years. Like I was traveling a ton, making great money for my age. I've had a lot of success in, in my corporate jobs and, and that's really fueled my ability to grow uh, our real estate portfolio. Um, but I, I distinctly remember waking up and saying, man, if, if I'm 55 still doing this, I'm going to be really upset. Our guest today is the Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Self Storage, the 27th largest self-storage operator in the United States. In our time together, Chris Benson details what makes self-storage such an attractive investment and reliant strategy for identifying self-storage acquisitions. All right, well, Chris, uh, yeah, let's start broad um, and what you're passionate about. You said in one of your communications to me that inspiring others to change their mindset around investing for their future. And so what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I, I would say that most people, um, it's hard to look out 20, 30 years and see what that looks like. And so I, I think for me, it's, it's getting people to understand um, that almost everything in real estate is a good deal in 20 years, if you can have that long-term horizon, right? So think about, you know, the first house you bought or, you know, specific uh, investment property, if you've been um, investing for that long and ostensibly if you take everything 20 years out, it's going to be a good deal. And, and I don't think it's too dissimilar than how people look at the equities markets. It's just, I think people have to have this long-term lens mm-hmm. as to how real estate works and what their expectations should be with investments. And if you take that long-term lens, then, you know, uh, I, typically you're going to have good results. I, I think where people get in trouble is when they're looking for that get rich quick scheme. And, and that's not, I don't think I'm saying something that most people don't know already, but it, it, it takes time and, and diligent effort along the way and massive action. And then ultimately you're going to get the goal that you want at the end. So how do you, how do you set investor expectations with what you guys are doing at Reliant Self Storage? Well, so I, I think Kirk, for, for us, it's, we're trying to set expectations around what the projected hold times are in our projects. And I think what our investors are trusting us to do is maximize the value of the property for them. And, and quite frankly, for us, how our compensation structure is built um, for us, the sponsor is we don't really make money or share in the profits until you do. So um, it's, it's up to us to essentially um, be opportunistic in the market and understand when the right time to sell is. And so as an investor with projects that you're doing with us, um, you essentially are trusting us to make that decision. And, you know, typically our projects are somewhere in that five to seven year hold time, uh, but you got to be prepared. You know, maybe it goes to 10 years. If the market is in a position where seven years from now, we are not going to maximize the value, then it's not in your best interest or our best interest to sell. Uh, So I think for us, it's, you know, giving us the leeway and trust to do that. And, and sometimes it works itself out to be shorter, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, seven years. We sold two properties last week that, 
you know, we owned them just over three and a half years. And, and we, we got an offer from a, a publicly traded REIT that, that made sense for us and our investors. So we disposed of the properties. And I think the goal of these types of projects is to trust in, you know, our expertise in the market. And, you know, whether that be a short term or a long term, um, that's the goal with our investor base. Dive deeper into self-storage uh, here in the next few minutes. But uh, one thing that came clear to me through our communication is it sounds to me like your dad uh, had taught you some things and had a fairly significant influence on your life growing up. What, what would you say some of the things your dad taught you that come through in your business now? And then I also know that you have two sons, and I'd love to hear what you're transmitting to them as they launch uh, you know, out of uh, out of the nest, so to speak, into college and beyond. <laughs> well, uh, I'll let you know in about ten years if anything that I've told my kids actually has resonated <laughs> with them. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I, I we, get out. We have a seventeen-year-old yeah. about to graduate high school and a thirteen-year-old. Uh, um, and let me start with with my dad first. It's interesting. Um, I, I'm diametrically opposed to who my dad is. My dad is super conservative, um, a very consistent and uh, patient man. I'm the exact opposite. I, you know, he worked for IBM uh, for 38 years, I think 38, um, before he retired. And um, he's very conservative financially. Um, you know, he, he chooses not to be in debt, which is fantastic. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. My approach um, is completely opposite in that I'm much more of a risk taker um, than he is or and continues to be. And um, it, I don't know where that came from. But the, the one thing that my dad did every day that has always sort of stuck with me is he showed up and, and it didn't matter when or if it was, you know, good times, bad times, if it was hard or easy, he was always there and, and very consistent in his efforts. And so I think that that's the thing that I always took from um, from my dad, kind of the lesson learned is if, if you show up, you know, whether you're uh, prepared or not, hopefully you are, but uh, if, if you show up, you're going to move forward. And I think that was the thing that, that spoke most to me over the years um, and watching him in his career. And, you know, I, for my kids, what I hope to do with them is that that essentially they see the world as an opportunity and and they don't have fear of trying anything um you know unfortunately i think in school kids are taught one path which is you know get good grades go to college get a job save for retirement and everything turns out well and you know i think i'm 39 and so i've kind of done that and I saw really quickly, probably when I was like 27, 28, that that probably isn't what I wanted. Um, what I really wanted is control and freedom. And, and that's what I'm trying to show the, my kids is, hey, you have the opportunity to build whatever you want. And, and you're going to have to work hard to do it. Um, but you have control over anything. And, and you don't need to know exactly where you're going. You just need to know what you're going to do next. And I think that's the biggest thing is just jumping in and saying, all right, well, I'd like to go try this. And maybe it doesn't work out, but it gives you an opportunity to go and learn. And in my experience and in my career thus far, that's where the biggest opportunities have been when I said, well, I don't really know what's going to happen here, but I'm, I'm going to give that a shot. And, you know, most of them, unfortunately, have worked out pretty well. And I hope my kids have the same um, 
freedom or, or the same uh, essentially passion to do that because it's hard when you're, you know, 40 and you unhappy in your career and don't know what you want to do next. It's, it's a tough place to be. And, and that's, I don't want them to do that. I want them to look back with no regrets. Curious, are there any specific things that you've done with your kids that take them on the path that you want them to go on? Kirk, I don't know if it's I want them to go on. It's more of a mindset, right? I mean, I, I want them to approach things with, um, I guess, unlimited opportunity or, or bravery, right? I guess that's what I'm seeking is I, I want them to look at everything as an opportunity. But as for you, so you're, you're chief investment officer at Reliant Self Storage. Uh, give me your sales pitch on why I would want to diversify into self storage. Yeah, well, just to give you a little bit of background on my story, Kirk. So um, I started probably sim- not too dissimilar um, in real estate, like many people do. Um, I had a corporate job. Um, most recently, I worked for Intuitive Surgical. They're the developers of the Da Vinci robot. Right. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that technology is unbelievable. It was an unbelievable company. And um, what happened was uh, probably 2007, 2008, I just started dabbling in single family or uh, multifamily at a small scale in the town we live in. So um, I realized very quickly that I wanted nothing to do with duplexes and quads. Um, I just, I did, it, it one, it didn't seem scalable to me. And two, I hated dealing with the people. It just wasn't fun at all. So I got into commercial real estate and it's, it's a long story that I'm going to make very short. I ostensibly was doing homework and said, okay, you know, I, I need to make something that's scalable. Commercial real, your commercial multifamily is scalable. And then I heard, I think it was a bigger pockets podcast. I, I don't remember exactly. They, I, it may have been someone else or I read it somewhere. And, but it was a quote that said, big deals and small deals are the same amount of work. You just make less money on small deals. And when right. I heard that, I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so I called a guy that I had grown up with. I, I used to go to church with. And, and literally, I had not talked to him in 15 years. He owned a construction company in the town I grew up in. And said to him, hey, I got a little bit of money. Um, my job, you know, I, I made really great money in my job. And we sold the uh, the single or the uh, the duplexes that we had acquired. Um, and so I had a little bit of money. And I said, hey, I want to build a commercial or a, a multifamily apartment complex. What do you got? And he said, oh, funny you called. He's like, I just had a meeting with uh, a municipality that was close by. There's a piece of land they'd like to see some class A apartments on. And so long, long story short, we ended up building a 64-unit apartment complex there, which was an incredible journey from a learning experience. Um, (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. And (laughs) what I did have was a great partner, and that that partner kept me from going off the rails. Now, (laughs) we certainly had some issues. Uh, We went over budget on the second phase pretty well in in the world of – in our world, fairly substantially. Um, So – you know, we had to put some cash up that that made us all nervous. But my role in the deal was essentially investing my life savings into <laughs> this apartment complex. And fortunately, <laughs> it worked. And so when I saw that, then the light bulb started going off for me. I was like, OK. Um, and what happened was I got into commercial multifamily um, investing in um, syndications around around the country in primary markets and and I had this group growing with me, Kirk, where 
people knew what I was doing from an investing standpoint and, and wanted to be involved in the next project that I did. So that group kind of grew organically. And as I started investing in, in syndications around the country, um, I was getting ownership in the back end of those deals. And so what happened, what drove me to storage was uh, about three years ago, one of the operators that I had invested with said, hey, we're done. We're going to slow down and stop doing deals and wait for this next market correction. And when there's blood in the streets, we're going to come and pick it all up. And so that was like a, a aha moment for me where I said, okay, maybe this space is overheated. I need to look at some additional asset classes. And so to your question, and I'm sorry it took me so long to get there, there were three reasons that I went to storage that I think are still really relevant. You know, the first one is when I look at an asset class, it's what's the overall returns, right? Um, and so you can, there's a, a website called, um, it's www.reit.com, R-E-I-T. It's the National Association of REITs. And they track all of the publicly traded REITs in all asset classes. Uh, and you can pull their historical data by asset class. So what it allows you to do is create some apples to apples comparisons around each asset class. So you can look at apartments, retail, office, you know, in industrial timber REITs, if there's a publicly traded REIT, they have data on it. So when I looked at storage originally, um, and this was, you know, three, four years ago, um, the, the uh, data on the self-storage industry, they outperformed apartments, which, you know, I think everybody would argue is the sexiest real estate class. Everybody wants to invest in apartments. But storage had outperformed uh, apartments by about three percentage points over 24 years. So storage did just over, at that time, I think it was 17% a year for 20 plus years. And when you say that to yourself, that's an incredible number. That's a great run. I think that, yeah. yeah. And apartments were somewhere in that 12 to 13%, which is also fantastic, right? Nobody's going to complain. But it was an interesting kind of eye opener for me where I said, wow, you know, storage has outperformed arguably the best asset class that I'm aware of. And then the next thing I looked at was what happened in 2007, 8, and 9, right? Because returns are great, but what happens in a downturn? Because everything's cyclical and it, it is only a matter of time. And so in 2007, 8, and 9, if you look at the, the same data, storage was down less than 4%. Hmm. Apartments, it was close to 7 The S&P 500 was down almost 22%. So, you know, if you're a Warren Buffett subscriber, the number one rule is don't lose money. So not only did storage outperform, but in the downturn, it, it did better than every asset class I looked at. And so I think that's one of those were the two kind of like, oh, I should be I should be looking at this and investing. And then the last piece where this was sort of my motivation for actually getting involved in the industry um, is. 25% of the market, depends what data you look at, but about 20 to 25% of the market is owned by six publicly traded companies. The rest, that other 70, 75% of the market is all over the board. So there are operators like Reliant, right? We're the 27th largest self-storage operator in the US. And as I had said, there are six publicly traded companies in storage. So there's 20 companies in between us that are bigger than us. We have just under 50 properties. So what that 
means is the market is very fragmented and there's huge opportunities for consolidation. So we can go to a mom and pop operator, right? Uh, you know, somebody who maybe they bought a storage facility 10 years ago, they built it, they run it, um, and the, it's been great. You know, they're cash flowing. And, but they may not be running it like a business. No rental rate increases. They're not doing all their ancillary income items. And so for us, those are huge opportunities. So when I saw that in storage, in my mind, what that said is big opportunity for a business to consolidate that. So what happened is, so that was my decision. Okay, I'm going to go do some self-storage. Um, and then I had to find somebody to partner with. Uh, and, and that's where I found Reliant. Essentially, you know, people ask like, well, how did you find Reliant? I, I, again, it was a cold call. I, I pulled up a list of the top 100 self-storage operators. It, it's published from this company called Minico. And every year they do a survey that says, hey, you know, here are the top 100 self-storage operators in the U.S. And just started calling people. And um, I met with a few. Reliant called back. And basically I said, hey, I'm interested in investing in storage. I'd like to come meet you. And uh, we did. And long, long, long story short, we essentially got to a point where I had invested in two of their projects. And then once I invested in their projects, um, Todd Allen, who's one of the principals of Reliant, and I had dinner one night. And, you know, he was having trouble raising equity. And, you know, I, I couldn't understand why, because their track record is exceptional. Right. And the answer was they didn't really have a salesperson. And I said, well, that's what I do. <laughs> so <laughs> me. we uh, we created a partnership, created uh, Reliant Investments, and um, you know the the rest. Well, I don't say it's history yet, but we've had a fun journey thus far. Uh, you know, in the past twelve months, we've raised just over with, with our partners. We've raised just over thirty eight million dollars and purchased just over ninety million of self storage assets. And um, you know, we're happy about the trajectory of last year, and it looks like similar to this year, we're going to have a, a similar path. So. We, we believe there's still a huge opportunity in storage for the reasons I just said. And, um, you know, we're excited to, uh, to continue that path. What are the things you guys are looking for that make for a good self-storage deal? First thing that you got to think about, right, and this isn't too dissimilar to multifamily is the market, right? What are you going into and, and ultimately what are going to be the drivers for, for your tenants? Storage is one of those interesting things that, um, you know, the demand is created by transition, right? We're, we're a business of change. So when people have changes going on in their lives, they use storage, right? It's different than apartments where everybody has to have a place to live. Um, so, you know, things like moving, divorce, uh, you know, seasonal changes where maybe I'm a snowbird, um, I'm being relocated for work, those kinds of things. I'm building a new house. They create demand for storage. So, you know, some of the things that we're looking for is um, is population based. But what's interesting about storage is it's also very micro market specific. So, you know, you may have uh, Atlanta, for example, as a as a metropolitan statistical area in MSA. And in that market, storage may be oversupplied, right? There may be too much storage for the demand. And I'll, I'll walk you through how we how we kind of ascertain supply and demand. But What's interesting with storage is about typically about 70% of our tenants will come within a three mile radius. So if you put a dot on a map where your facility is and draw a three mile ring around it, that's pretty much your addressable market. Now, it does depend where you are. And sometimes there's some geographical features that either extend that ring or contract it. You know, in, in Manhattan, for example, they're looking at people per block because it's such a small, tight 
tight knit area. Well, and density. I guess my point yeah. is, yeah, there's, there's population density there. You know, I think the thing that you have to think about with storage is you have to know that market, that one, three and five mile ring intimately. What's happening around it, it matters, but not as much as what's happening in those rings. And so being on the ground and intimately being intimately familiar with um, that market is critical. And it's very much a sharpshooter's game because what's happening in storage, to your point, is it's gained a lot of traction. And with that has come new development, right? And I would argue, Kirk, that that's our biggest risk right now is, is new supply coming to the market. In 2017 and again in 2018, the industry delivered the most new net rentable square feet in the history of the asset class. So there's been this huge development cycle in storage. 2019, it's supposed to plateau and then begin to drop off where, you know, the developers have said, okay, we're going to wait and see what happens here and see if we can fill up all this new supply. So what's critical for you when you're looking at a product property is really understanding that one, three, five mile ring, right? Location, what, what, um, what facilities are around it, what new development activity. You know, we look at something called traffic count, right? Where you're just seeing how many cars are driving by your facility a day. You know, typically about 30% of our tenant base comes from just drive-by traffic. Um, as far as, you know, people seeing the facility um, and making, making that their storage location. So yeah, we're, we're looking at population at, at a high level. I would say a population in that one, three, and five mile. I would say that the the, uh, the traffic counts um, also critically important. Um, what the the supply is of storage and how we do that, and, and this is sort of an industry standard. Is and I'll give a brief example. Most of our properties are in the southeast, um, so we use a number of seven square feet per capita. And what that basically means is you look at the population in, let's say, the five-mile radius of your facility. And, and let's say, for example, there's 100,000 people there. Well, if it's 100,000 times um, seven square feet, then that means there should be 700,000 square feet of storage available. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So if, if you look at the market and add up all the competitive facilities around it and there's 500,000 of square feet, arguably – the market is undersupplied, right? So you have probably a good opportunity in that market. If it's, you know, not, if you add up all the facilities and there's 900,000 square feet, well then arguably the market is oversupplied and you probably don't want to be in that space. So that's something that we're looking at all the time. Um, one interesting nuance to that, and I'll give you an example of what we do as part of our underwriting. We get a map or, or when we buy a facility, we get a list of all the current tenants um, at that facility, and then we'll map on a uh, you know a map, just a bubble, a dot map of where all those tenants live, and then we'll overlay them with the one, three, and five mile radius to see where the tenants are actually coming from. Because what we want to understand is if new supply comes into the market or is planned to come into the market, is it going to affect us? And it's really interesting, Kirk. Like there are pieces that you know, uh, a highway. I w we were at a facility in Tampa two weeks ago or outside of Tampa and I-75 runs just to the west of, of our facility. And, and seven, I think the number was 84% of our tenants come from west of I-75. Now there's no reason 
why tenants can't drive under the underpass to get to the other side of I-75, yeah. Yeah. but they, they don't come to us. They just and, don't. And I don't yeah. know why. It just, there are these man-made um, barriers that get created and, and it splits tenant bases. And so, you know, for us, it, it gives us some more comfort um, and transparency into where are our people coming from and then what's going to happen if the market shifts, right? If let's say a new facility opens on the other side of I-75, well, we would argue, you know, based on our current tenant base, probably not going to make that big of an impact. Now, right. if it's on our side of I-75, that one's going to hurt, right? Yes. That's going to that's going to draw tenants out. So, you know, we're we're looking at all these kinds of things, and I think you know it's something that as new people looking at storage, you you definitely have to do your homework because, um, as you had mentioned, storage has gained a lot of momentum in in the real estate investing world. And you just want to make sure that, you know, you're investing in something that um, is going to have some long-term legs for you. Well, hey, thanks so much for that and for your time in general. If if people want to get in touch with you or see what Reliance up to, how do they do that? Yeah, for sure. Um, we have, uh, you, you can reach out to Chris Benson on LinkedIn. If, if you search Chris Benson, um, we, we put a fair amount of content uh, through our LinkedIn page. Um, we have a couple websites for Reliant, ReliantInvestments.com. It's uh, Reliant uh, Investments, plural, uh, .com. And then uh, Reliant Real Estate Management is also another website you can check out to learn more about the firm and, uh, and our track record. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, by all means, uh, you know, I'm happy to put my email out there for your, for your listeners, Kirk, um, and, and we can put those perhaps in some of the show notes. You bet. People can list, uh, you know, reach out direct. I'd be happy to, uh, to chat with them. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate it. At the end of each interview, our guest is asked to go back in time to mentor their 20-year-old self. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Well, if you could go back and meet the 20-year-old Chris Benson, what would you tell yourself? I'd have some advice for my haircuts at that time, Kirk, to be honest. (laughs) I don't know if that would have changed my life my trajectory but i had some like bleach blonde things going on and my hair is dark brown just for your listeners here i it it did not look natural at all you know i had been exposed a little bit differently than you my dad did have a couple rental houses growing up but it was never really taught to me like it was always there in the periphery like i mowed the lawns at the places but it never made sense or i never realized like oh, this is cash flow every month that you don't have to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it was for me um, was when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, probably around that same time frame, uh, that was the first exposure I had had to passive income, the idea of it. And that's that was for me the catalyst that said, oh, that's how you do this. Right. Is you try to build things that make you money, whether you're at them, you know, if you're doing it or not you still get a check. Um, but, but in any event, I, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate you asking. I, I think the biggest thing for me at 20, and, and I don't know if I would have been ready to hear it either, but it would have been don't create overhead. Hmm. And, and that's a function of what that I'm thinking now, right? Which is what I want now is just freedom, freedom to be anywhere, to do anything. Um, and what, and overhead could be debt, right? It could be mortgages, cars, boats, Etc. Whatever it is that creates um, anchors, I would have advised myself to be very light on those, because the sooner you know, the, the lower that number is, you know, that monthly nut that you have to cover to sustain your lifestyle, 
the easier it is to be free. So if, if I could have given that to myself at 20 and, and 20 year old Chris would have said, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think that would have shaved, you know, four or five years, maybe longer off my path because I think myself, like, like many of us, when I started making um, good money, I bought lots of stuff that arguably doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, and I did it multiple times, like got a bigger house a couple times, you know, got cool toys. And, and then I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Every time I buy these things, I have to pay for them. <laughs> so it, it would have, uh, that, that probably would have been the biggest thing um, for 20 year old Chris to hear. So we hope you gained something from today's guest. Now, feel free and talk about what you learned from the conversation on the comments section of this podcast on the Real Estate Time Machine website. So I asked today's guests to share more about their personal philosophy, the big idea that drives their life and work. We'll post those deep thoughts at the end of the week on Philosophy Friday, only on the Real Estate Time Machine.